Hi there, it's Marla with the Narrate Team. In this week's message, Adam asks the question, what if there's a way to getting well that requires a lot of hard work but involves doing nothing? As we wrap up the Art of Emotion series, Adam shares the idea of centering prayer to help us move in the direction of emotional health. Enjoy the message. So, uh, several years ago, which I'm realizing, I said this last service, it's a sure sign you're getting old when several years refers more to decades than years. So about 15 years ago, uh, I was reading a book by Howard Hendricks, who's done some great stuff on teaching, and he taught at a seminary down in Dallas. He was kind of the guy a while ago. And he said something in there that I'm still not sure whether it reinforced a bias or created one in me, but he said something to the effect of most, most pastors, most communicators, people like myself, uh, he, he likened us. He said most of them are like travel agents, so dated metaphor. Most of them are like travel agents handing out brochures to places they themselves have never visited. Of course, his criticism was the danger of standing up here with a microphone and talking about stuff that, that me, myself, am not working on or that you yourself talking to anybody about something, telling anyone to do anything and not be invested in it yourself. And that, again, that was formative for me, and that has a lot to do with the culture around here. That's not to say that I'm perfect at it. I know I'm not. Uh, but it's part of what can lead to some self-absorption around here because, frankly, I simply refuse to talk about something that I don't, uh, can't see why it matters for me now today. It's also why we work hard to do series that are way out in advance. I'm working right now in my own morning chair time on stuff that we'll cover in, in January. But still, of course, it's always more true than others, right? Like, there, there are still times where I come up on a series and go, oh, yeah, four months ago I thought about that and I haven't thought about it since. But that's what I'm trying to avoid. I say all that to say this morning's going to be pretty weird. Uh, if you're looking for evidence that church is full of weirdos, this is you came with the perfect time this morning. Uh, it's also going to be a little weird in the sense if you're looking for evidence that I have completely fallen off the deep end and don't follow Jesus anymore, this will be the perfect weekend. But what I want to talk about this morning is centering prayer, and to whatever degree you don't agree with where I'm going with it, I just wanted to say this. At the very least, I'm very personally vested, which doesn't necessarily make it any more or less true, but what I can say is on this thing that I'm talking about this morning, I, I have been practicing this uh, 20 minutes a day, six days a week, going all the way back to last August. And so to whatever else we're going to say about it, I just want you to know, like, I'm, I'm in this with you. That's not to say I'm an expert. I'm well aware that I've got a whole lot more work to do, but there's that. Now, if you're a guest with us, uh, we're thrilled that you're here. We recognize visiting a church for the first time is really tricky, if not intimidating and vulnerable. And so good job, and thanks for being here. Uh, what I want to say to you is you're catching this at the end of the movie. And that doesn't mean we're, you know, you're not welcome here. It just, just means to kind of make you self-aware of this is part five of a five-part series called The Art of Emotion, hence the clip, where we've been exploring questions like what if God experiences emotion? And what if he's not the stoic God that the Greeks have had led us to believe, but what if the representation of his emotion in the text is actual and that somehow he can be completely other, not human, and at the same time experience emotion the way the scripture, especially the Old Testament, seems to portray? What if Jesus experienced emotion not just because he was human, but because he was also God? And that's raised all these questions about what would that say for us about what it means to understand emotion? Well, last week we turned a little bit different corner and last week we started talking about the, sh the shadow self. And if you weren't with us, uh, the, the way that you can think about the shadow self is we, we know, many of us, that part of our American psyche is that um, you, you, you have unique skills and gifts. 
And that if you don't make your contribution, that contribution won't be made. And we even Christianize that, and I'm not even necessarily pushing against that, to say, like, God made you for specific things. Now, I'm not convinced it's as individualistic or self-absorbed as we often make it, but nonetheless, we recognize that we have unique strengths. What the shadow self explores is that the same thing is true in the negative. That to whatever degree you, all, you, you have kind of preformed strengths, you also have preformed deviations and darkness. Now we can see this on some of the surface level. Like we know that the hard-driving entrepreneur is also likely to be the control freak. Uh, we know that the empathetic, understanding, kind person is also likely to be an enabler or a pushover. We, we, we can see some of those tendencies. What the shadow self begins to explore is, what if Jesus doesn't call us to suppress the darkness? In fact, what if part of what we see in the Gospels is him really celebrating people who, who, who didn't suppress it? What we see him is calling people out who did. He says things to the Pharisees like, you're a whitewashed wall. You're a hypocrite. That he was really hard on people who, who suppressed darkness in the name of following God. And the people who tended to be closest to him were those who must have been very aware of their darkness because they were former prostitutes and tax collectors and myriad other kind of disreputable kinds of things. And so what we explored last week is what, what if a function of self-awareness, of emotional intelligence, is to be intelligent about what your triggers are, what, what sin looks like in you, to, to know as it's happening, this might not be that that person's the worst person ever, this might be that they imposed their will on mine, and I don't like that. And what would be the advantage of being intelligent about those things? So here's what I want to do this morning. This is like the longest introduction ever, I get it is I think if, if you're leaning into that work, which Myers-Briggs and Enneagram and many other things can help you with, it raises the question, what do we do once we know what our darkness looks like, or at least begin to know? I think centering prayer is a tool. But then there's another area where I think it can help, especially for those of you who maybe weren't here last week or really are a little freaked out about the shadow self and haven't thought at all about it since. You know, one of the things that I've loved about uh, the relationships that I've got to form in the youth baseball community that I've got to be a part of with my family these last several years is it gives me a chance to interact with, frankly, a lot of people who, who aren't necessarily, certainly aren't a part of this place. And, and that's not me judging them. I'm just saying the facts are what's refreshing is at times to be surrounded by a bunch of non-churched or unchurchy people. Not that you're churchy. You, you're with me, right? <laughs> Whew, digging a hole here. And one of the things I've had to play out in my head is if, if some of my friends ask me, like, what is the value of church? Like, how would I answer that? What, what makes it a valuable experience? Now, I don't know if this is accurate, but part of what I've started to think in my head and have been working on this for a couple of years is that one way to describe you all is that you're, you're eager learners. That as best I can tell, Narrate is comprised largely of a community of people who care deeply about the way they treat people around them, the relationship with God that they have, that you're trying to grow as a person, as a leader, as an individual. You're trying to love God and others more effectively, which means this isn't necessarily all of you doing all these things, but to me, you're a community who is constantly consuming challenges, whether that's a therapist or a book or you've learned the art of listening to sermons and podcasts, you're constantly listening to TEDx on, or TED on your phone. Like, we are a community of learners, Here's where I think the centering prayer might be challenging for you to whatever degree that you're someone that goes, yeah, that's, that's me. I'm kind of a self-help consumer. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Part, part of what stands out to me is those of us who, who share those tendencies, we love to control our own growth. Part of what it does is it, it affirms that not only can we control the world with our minds, we can control our own growth 
with our minds. And it's not that I'm pushing against that. I agree with Dallas Willard when he says one of the most important things about our lives is what we do with our minds. But centering prayer in a very Eastern kind of tradition challenges us to recognize that there is growth that can occur even when you're not controlling it intellectually. So here's the question I want to ask this morning is what if, what if there's another tool for getting well that requires a whole bunch of hard work but involves doing nothing? That's really what centering prayer is. Now, again, I, if you're weirded out, I'm with you. You probably should be, but uh, where, where did this come from for me? Well, Many of you will know that I'm a graduate of George Fox Seminary, now Portland Seminary, which I think is kind of pretentious, but I lost that battle. Uh, but, but as an alum, I get to take classes as I like. And a couple years ago, uh, th- uh, th- thanks to others, I was able to start taking one class a semester just again to continue to grow and hopefully that we don't become stagnant and sterile starting with the way I lead. Well, last uh, summer, I decided I was going to start taking uh, the spiritual director's classes. So before, I was just kind of cherry-picking, but there's a new certificate within their graduate work involved spiritual directing that I know a little bit about and I wanted to learn more about. Spiritual directors might be a term lost on you. It's not in places like Portland and Seattle and in urban context. Uh, To the degree that I understand it, what spiritual directors are doing when done well is these are professional people who are working in concert with therapists and psychiatrists in kind of that one-on-one type work but they're respecting the uniqueness of each other's work. And where spiritual directors are making, uh, doing a lot of good in places like Portland is with people not unlike yourselves who, who are championing spiritual growth and even following Jesus in their life, but have deep reservations about church in this form and frankly are more and more disconnected from relationships in our technology-driven world. What they're doing is they're helping people form the relationships because they recognize as we learn nothing outside of the context of relationships, so to talk to Jesus just between you and a book is dangerous. So I wanted to take this and kind of learn it more. I've had coffee with people professionally for 20 years, try to have intelligent conversation about God. I'm really intrigued about where the church is going in 20 years with the advent of online church and many other things. So I just wanted to learn about it. So I signed up for the, the, the courses, and the first two are called Knowing Self, or excuse me, uh, they're called Identity and Awareness. Frankly, last week and this week is my summary of uh, two graduate-level classes from George Fox. And the first assignment I was given by Dr. Bruner, you'll know him and all his awesomeness because he teaches here about once a year. The first assignment I was given by him for this class was to practice centering prayer six days a week, 20 minutes a day. Now, I had this external motivation thing uh, that that involved my ability um, uh, to have to check a box at the end of the week to get a grade saying I had done that. What is centering prayer? Here here was the assignment. This, this, This is weird. And it's very non-Western. But nonetheless, here we go. The assignment was 20 minutes a day, you're to sit in some form of a chair, silence all devices, and think about nothing. Which is kind of like driving down the road and seeing a billboard and going, don't look left, right? Like thinking about nothing is this at times oxymoronic thing. But the design of it again is, is that you learn. Here's ultimately what you're doing, is being attentive to what you're doing with your mind. Uh, one parallel that is helpful to me, and different traditions have used this picture in different ways, is imagine yourself uh, sitting maybe this afternoon on a rock next to the Missouri River. Now, of course, as you're doing so, uh, I'm not a fisherman because I can't catch fish, so I just play baseball, but I'm told that, that as, as you're sitting there, myriad boats are going to come by, right? Like drift boats, rafts, some annoying tubers who are only chasing fish away, people walking the shore fishing, Here's ultimately what centering prayer involves for those 20 minutes, is it's not not recognizing those boats, 
Like you can't keep yourself from doing, seeing the boat. But the practice is the moment you become consciously aware of the fact that you're focused on this boat or this thought, you let it go. So the idea is, is to, to shorten up how long you're attentive to what you're thinking about. Now, it involves a sacred word, which nothing sacred about it other than no one's supposed to know what it is. Mine is breathe. But the idea is, is when you, when you become aware that you're following this thought, you let it go and you come back to this center. And here's the end game. The end game is ultimately that every thought you have, you surrender back to God. It's 20 minutes of surrendering, which is why the experts in this, which I am not, will say this. If in 20 minutes you fail 2,000 times, well, you haven't failed. You've actually succeeded at returning to God in a posture of surrender 2,000 times, which is another way of saying the only way you fail at this is to not show up. Now, one of the catches here is, is you, don't, you don't get to go looking for aha, if you have insight, you don't get to hit timeout. You don't get to write it down. In fact, you surrender the insight too. So you see, it kind of gets at the opposite of what we like because you're believing that God can do something in the silence and solitude of your surrender. Now, where does this come from? Because again, I know it sounds more Eastern. Well, Thomas Keating tells a story, and he's one of the uh, real innovators of this idea uh, centering prayer. He tells a story from the early 1960s when he was a Benedictine monk uh, somewhere in Spencer, Massachusetts, actually, was where he lived. And in the early 60s, I, I wasn't there, but I've seen Forrest Gump, uh, as, as things were happening, there was another monastery, Catholic monastery, down the street that failed. It went out of business. They ultimately listed the property, and it sold to a group of Buddhists. It was reopened as the Insight Meditation Center. Well, in the months that followed, after that place opened, Thomas Keating says that there would frequently be a knocking at the door of his monastery, the one he was at. But the inquirer wasn't asking what they could learn from him. The inquirer was asking for directions to the Insight Meditation Center. There was no iPhone. People actually had to follow a map, and they struggled to do so. And so they would show up over and over and over again asking for directions to this Buddhist meditation center. He started to recognize that a lot of the people asking actually came from Christian traditions themselves. And so he started asking them, uh, what are you looking for? And in his words, I quote, the, the common refrain was, a path, man. I'm looking for a path. Now, what they were referring to was this kind of place that they would arrive at where they understood their future, uh, but, but not through academic books, but just through silence and solitude. And he started to say, why aren't you looking for the path from your own Christian tradition? And they would look at him like he was from Mars, and they would say, Christianity has a path? And so what Thomas Keating did was he went back with many of his friends and started to go, wait a minute. We've got this long, rich tradition of meditation, the Desert Fathers, the Catholic stream in particular, this long stream of Christian meditation, we've lost it. And so they started to, to rebrand it, reposition it, and they started using the term centering prayer. Now, why? And what's the value? Well, here's, to whatever degree this is helpful, here's part of what I learned in this process, and I'm sorry if this feels more like a seminar. Uh, when I was 19, probably not unlike a lot of you at different seasons of your life, I became acutely aware of the fact that I was really bad at leading my own life. At the time, I would have called it conversion, but I think in hindsight, I just had experienced enough life to realize that I'm really terrible at making decisions, and I had enough familiarity with Jesus to know, like, he's better at it, and if I surrender to him, he'll lead me through that. In that season of life, I was already connected and attending a great local church, Faith Chapel in Billings, one of the best. Stan Simmons was teaching. And so some things happened for me really quickly. First of all, I began to value the sermon. 
And not like counting ceiling tiles, but actually recognizing that, and this can help me think through and live life. I began to value uh, personal Bible study, and some people in my life began to teach me how to do that, and prayer, uh, the one-on-one -on -one conversation. There were a couple mentors in my life that were key in helping me process life and make decisions and call me on my stuff. I began to value, I'd always valued reading, but I kind of transitioned from reading Dean Koontz and Stephen King to reading Christian leadership and self-help type books. I recognized the value of community. I recognized serving uh, and the value of that. I started teaching fifth and sixth grade at this local church on Saturday nights. But here, here's what I'm starting to understand, and it's not, a bull, it's not an either or, it's a both and. That all played to my control freak's strengths. Because ultimately what I'm doing in that is recognizing, because really what I was mastering is, is Psalm 139, I think, summarizes it really well. And, and I'm grateful that people taught me this. Psalm 139, uh, the psalmist says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's ultimately a practice of going, okay, Lord, what's broken in me? What do you want to address next? And I, I mastered the art to some degree of going, okay, so God, we're going to work on anxiety. So where does the Bible talk about that? And where, what podcasts can I find? And what books can I read? But here's what stood out to me this last year in Centering Prayer. The one thing it did was it protected my sense of autonomy and control. It affirmed that ultimately Adam can control life through what he does with his mind. And it's not that I'm pushing back on the value of the mind, but I'm pushing back a little bit on that control. See, here's what centering prayer begs you to consider. And if you reject it and think that it's too e weird and mystical and Eastern, here's ultimately what you're rejecting. What, what centering prayer, in my opinion, what, what it's bringing forth is this idea that there are parts of you that you aren't aware are there. And God in his grace will work on them without your ever knowing it. See, Cynthia Bourgeau, who I highly recommend everything she's written, my favorite book on this topic, it's on the mind map, and there's a great podcast on there where I highly recommend listening if you're all intrigued. She says this. She says there's silence, and then there's silence. She illustrates it this way. That, that there, there is something that she calls uh, outer silence. Now, this is the type of silence that probably all of us know. It's the type of silence that you're looking for when you get off work, uh, maybe when you turn off your phone, uh, when you say we should watch a movie that's actually driven oftentimes right by this desire, like, I just want to get away. I'm going to have a beer. There's lots of things we do to get to this outer silence. She points out that silence goes deeper than that. There's what she calls inner silence. Inner silence is, she says, what people are looking for when they go to church. Maybe when you go for a long walk or a bicycle ride and maybe even listen to a podcast and you just kind of get to that cathartic kind of gone place. It's what we look for that when we go on retreats and sometimes even vacations. It's, 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 she would say that it's, it's the deepest form of silence most especially Americans ever get to. And then she says, only through inner, uh, excuse me, centering prayer do we ever experience what she calls, or my, my words for what she labels, uh, surrendered silence. See, this is a form of silence uh, that lives in the awareness that, that sometimes the best thing is just to focus on God, but differently than the way we often think about it through meditation. So part of what she's observing, and again, I, I know this is maybe uncomfortable for you guys, uh, but she recognizes that we, we don't just have a conscious self, that we also have a subconscious and even an unconscious self. We can go to that slide if you don't mind, Marla. That there's parts of you that when you look in the mirror, you're not surprised to see it. And then there's parts of you 
that when your spouse looks at you, they're not surprised to see it, but you are, right? And then there's parts of you that God knows about, but nobody else can see. What she's arguing about is, is, is that centering prayer allows the grace of God to get all the way to the part of you that's frankly pretty broken, unknown by everybody but God, but still loved by God. That it's, it's inviting you to deepen your awareness on one level and to be aware that you'll never be completely aware of it on another. Now here's another couple other kind of $10 words uh, that I think are helpful to this conversation. They're the words cataphatic and apophatic. Uh, these are different types of meditation. I remember them this way because cataphatic sounds like a cat and I don't want a cat, though we also probably do want this kind of meditation. And then there's apophatic. Cataphatic meditation, and if you're sleeping, I'm sorry, we'll be back to the surface in just a minute. Cataphatic meditation is the type of meditation that to whatever degree you're familiar with it, you're probably, this is what you know. It, it's Lectio Divina. It's, it's what we've talked about with anxiety stuff around here. It's, it's plugging a new tape into the deck. It's, I'm going to meditate on this verse. I'm going to meditate on this verse. I'm going to think about this truth. I'm just going to try to force my mind to stay here. That's cataphatic meditation and certainly very prevalent and important. Apophatic meditation is the opposite. Apophatic meditation is about the emptying, the removal, the stepping away from, the surrender. In fact, uh, those who theologically go here, and please understand that even if you disagree with them, uh, these are deeply sincere, deeply theological, Christ-following, thoughtful people. One of the go-tos for them theologically is Philippians 2, where Paul says, who being in very nature God, speaking of Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. That made himself nothing is the word kenosis. It's emptying. And what these guys are recognizing is that if it was advantageous for Jesus to empty himself, maybe it is for us as well. So the question becomes, but where is it at in the scriptures? And if we're being honest, this is probably more based upon Christian tradition than it is scripture. It would be helpful if you could point to the place in the Bible where it says, and Jesus practiced meditations. It would be helpful if you could point to the Bible where it says, and Jesus taught meditation. Frankly, you can't. There are illusions, though. What we can observe is Jesus had this habit of withdrawing, especially before these major moments in life. In Matthew 4, uh, we, we get an example of this. After his baptism, it says this, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, the wilderness looks like this, just in case uh, you're thinking of, like, grape orchards and palm trees. It's about exposure. It's, it's about vulnerability. It's about solitude and silence, almost to a deafening degree. Uh, in Mark 6, we, we get a story where, where Jesus, uh, he's actually grieving the loss of, of one of his best friends and cousin, John the Baptist. He's heartbroken about it. He needs to go process it. And, and the text says this, so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So they went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee uh, to, to get away. Uh, in another instance, in Luke 6, uh, there's an instance where Jesus, again, we're just talking these key moments where Jesus seems to have been doing important things. Uh, right before he picks the disciples, the text tells us this. Uh, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. So there's this very important, very big decision. And what did Jesus do? sit down and diagram it out and figure out what the science would tell him to do here? No, what, what we know is he went and got 
alone. Again, we can't argue that he was doing apophatic or cataphatic, but we know he got alone. In Matthew 17, it seems rather matter-of-factly, Matthew says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Again, this practice of isolation. In Matthew 26, a verse that I feel like I read every week at Narrate, before his arrest and crucifixion, it says this, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I'll go over there and pray. In fact, uh, Luke 5, I, I'm realizing, I realized this week that I, I butcher this verse too often. Listen to Luke 5. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that the crowds of people came to, him, to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Translation, like likes on his Instagram page were way up. His friends wouldn't stop Snapchatting him. His, his circles were getting bigger and bigger. And what did he do? But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So we can't necessarily argue what exactly he was doing there, but we can see this practice. Cynthia Bourgeau says it this way. She says, virtually every spiritual tradition that holds a vision of human transformation at its heart also claims that a practice of intentional silence is non-negotiable. And I wonder how much more true that is in an age of iPhones and Apple Watches and constant presence to our stuff. Now, if you choose to jump into this, there's a warning. And to be sure, it's a warning that Dr. Bruner issued to us. We were about six weeks in uh, into this practice. I was, and I was in Portland for the day of class with Dr. Bruner. And towards the end of class, he said, okay, I have to warn you. He said, you guys are six weeks into this. If you keep going, it's about to get really dark. Now, my shadow self is control and familiarity, so when people say stuff like that, I'm just like, well, then why would I keep going forward? Like, why would you even tell me that? That's the stupidest thing you could ever say. And I just kind of seize up. But nonetheless, about a month later, and I don't know that I fully realized this till it was over, but I, but I can say with confidence and integrity now that the middle of November through Christmas were a, a, this, the darkest six weeks of my adult life, which is ironic because I was deep into this practice. And what was going on here? Well, here's, ironically, my ability to cognitively explain it. What I began to experience, I think, as I make sense of it, was that the more serious you get about this practice, which means the more serious you get about there, there is parts of yourself that you can't see, the more that I grew in this practice, frankly, the more that my brokenness became apparent. The more that I'm a raging control freak, the, 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 the more that, that I don't like surprises, all that stuff became more and more apparent. But here's what came with it. My acknowledgement that I couldn't do anything about it. I'd spent the last 20 years doing the evangelical thing, which I don't regret and I'm not going to stop. God, what's the brokenness? Okay, where's the podcast? Where's the book? Where's the Bible study? Where's the verse? And something about the practice was this reminder of, listen, 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 you, you, don't, get to totally cha- you don't get to totally control your ability to change. These things would start happening to me, and I know we're not supposed to get these direct uh, results from it, but this is the stuff that started to happen to me, and it was, it was depressing. I had one happen this week. I've talked to him about it, but earlier in the week, we were at baseball practice, and one of my boys made a few errors at third, and I kind of did that, like, come on, get the ball. And in hindsight, this happened to me the next day, in the middle of nowhere, do, or in the middle of the day, thinking about whatever else I was supposed to be thinking of. I instantly could see him and his eyes, and I remember at the time, I was thinking, like, work harder, And in the moment, I thought, man, that hurts. And I followed up with him. But there were those moments of just awareness. But more than that, like, I'm a jerk. 
And, and despite 20 years of hard work, there's parts of me that are profoundly broken. I think part of what happens here is it invites you in, and to me this some way epitomizes grace, because grace would say, despite you, I wonder if part of the value of this is this reminder that even your own transformation into the image of Christ is not something you get to totally control. That this God knows parts of you that you can't see, that at times are more gross than you're aware. And he still loves you. And if part of what we're doing here is creating space for God's grace to permeate, See, part of what people like Cynthia Bourgeau say the win here is, is that if you in 20 minutes can master the art of surrender, then maybe, maybe in the midst of real life, when you're triggered, maybe that will heighten your ability. Before you trigger, and we already know psychologically, you're gone until you're back. But just before that transition point, maybe you can get better at catching those moments too. So listen, I, I don't know where you're at in this conversation, but here's the question. What, what, if, what if there's ways that God's grace wants to make us well? And this isn't anti-Bible study or anything like it, but ironically, there's times where God goes, would you just loosen your grip on your own growth? I'd like to pray for you, God. Lord, as we move into a song that's just all about this, I think, and our need for you to show up and oftentimes despite ourselves. God, I, I pray that you'd help us sort through which of this stuff is from you and which of it's garbage, which is the stuff that you want us to lean into and which is not for now. Lord, I, I pray for our students in particular who are in this uh, insanely connected, busy world that, like the rest of us, is so easily void of silence that that you'd lead us into some creative practices that we may never admit it, into just stepping into and away from everything else and for 20 minutes surrendering all to you. We love you, Jesus. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.